But I thought that maybe today we would talk a little bit about what the Department of Defense really is all about. You know, they provide the military forces that are needed, not just to ensure our nation's security, but to deter war here and abroad. The foundational strength of the Department of Defense is the men and the women who volunteer to serve our country and protect our freedoms. That's amazing to me that we have a volunteer army. Not many countries can say that men and women step up to serve without being called. Um, they have a lot of priorities too. You know, the m number one priority, and I say this all the time, is to have a lethal force, to build a force that wins wars, a force that can go out and defeat enemies, a force that is basically a killing machine. And I know that's hard for some people to hear or maybe to think about, but it's true and it's important. And we need to have strength in order to attract allies and then to strengthen those alliances and to attract new partners. Um, they never stop trying. Even if it's countries in the Middle East that uh, hate the great Satan, which would be us, and the little Satan, which would be Israel, there are reforms that are happening all over the world all the time. And the Department of Defense and the Department of State are the ones that monitor, track, and then uh, literally go in and do the hard work. When you look at the budget, the national defense budget is about 3% of the GDP of the gross domestic product. It's at about $716 billion. When you look at the people, there are 2.15 million service members. There are also about 730 civilian employees. They're actually, the Department of Defense is actually America's largest employer. And they're everywhere. On all seven continents, there's probably close to 5,000 defense sites. And right now, the acting Secretary of Defense is Patrick Shanahan. Um, and performing the duties of the Deputy Secretary of Defense is David Norquist. You know, how many people even know that? Unfortunately, not enough Americans because we're not taught these things and certainly the news coverage doesn't get to these things. They're too busy with all of the rigmarole of uh, Russian collusion. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is uh, Marine Corps General Joseph Dunford, Jr. The chairman, uh, the vice chairman is Paul Selva. He's an Air Force general. And there's a lot of leaders that we never hear talked about that help to make the Department of Defense um, the mightiest in all of the world, and many of which are women. And I know that goes unheralded a lot. You have Kara uh, Abercrombie, who is the Principal Director of the Security Cooperation Workforce Development Directorate. That's a mouthful, right? You also have Carrie Binden. She's the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. You have Anita Blair, who's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Civilian Personnel Policy. Julie Blanks is the Principal Director for Military Community and Family Policy. And uh, the Director of the Defense Health Agency is Vice Admiral Raquel C. Bond. I thought I would single out the women because we're always being told about what a misogynist this leader is, and apparently not. Laura Cooper is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. And, uh, you know, that's just uh, uh, the beginning of the list of people who keep it all together for us in the United States military. Quite an impressive list when you get right down to it. 
And then there's all the like civilian employees that work in the Department of Defense. And I just thought it'd be interesting for a change to look at uh, the Department of Defense since we don't thank God, have any names that we need to add. It's, of course, located in Arlington, Virginia, in a building that we refer to as the Pentagon. It's one of the world's largest office buildings. It actually has 17 and a half miles of hallways. It's got three times the floor space of the Empire State Building, and it houses uh, over 25,000 employees. If you've never been on a tour of the Pentagon, I strongly suggest that you take it. You're not going to be as lucky as me and get Jamie McIntyre to show you around, but you could nonetheless um, you know, book a tour. All you got to do is go to the website, and the website is uh, www.defense.gov. And I, I think it's something that parents should take their children you know, there. I also was grateful that I had an opportunity to speak with some people who had been in the Department of Defense on 9-11, since, of course, uh, my producer doesn't really believe that, uh, that a plane crashed into the Pentagon. So I wanted to make sure. That, Never said that. Well, you were kind of doubtful about it. And, you know, I, I actually spoke to a number of people who were there that day, and they assured me that, in fact... That's exactly what happened. You know, Patrick Shanahan made a statement after the State of the Union address um, talking about how it was an honor and a privilege to serve as uh, the acting secretary and that he was there at the behest and uh, to serve the president, Donald Trump, which I think was uh, nice to hear for a change. Everybody else is busy uh, trying to distance himself away from the administration, and you don't want to feel like your Defense Department is not in alliance with the presidency, the chief executive. Um, and, and then he made a statement just the other day regarding the National Emergency Act, which I thought was uh, really quite interesting, because so many people have given you really bad information when it comes to whether or not this was an appropriate use of the declaration of a national emergency. So I just want to share with you what the Department of Defense had to say about it. So the president has declared a national emergency on the southern border. The president invoked sections 12302, 28B7, and 2808 of Title 10, the U.S. Code, and requires the use of the armed forces to respond to this emergency through support to the Department of Homeland Security in its efforts to secure the southern border. 10 U.S.C. Section 12302, which is the activation of the Ready Reserve, authorizes involuntary activation of the Ready Reserve, which includes members who, when mobilized, perform a federal mission at the direction of the Secretary of Defense. 10 U.S.C. Section 284B7, the counter-drug support, authorizes the Department of Defense to support the counter-drug activities of other federal agencies, including the Department of Homeland Security, with the construction of roads, fences, and lighting to block drug smuggling corridors across international boundaries. And the Department of Defense will review and respond appropriately to any request for assistance that they receive from the Department of Homeland Security. Per 10 U.S.C. Section 2808, military construction, uh, referred to often as MILCON, 
This declaration of a national emergency at the southern border requiring the use of armed forces authorizes the Secretary of Defense to determine whether border barriers are necessary to support the use of the armed forces and to redirect unobligated DOD MILCON funding to construct border barriers if required. So apparently the Department of Defense and Secretary, Acting Secretary Shanahan agree with the president and you know congress may be divided but the american people are united on how they want to see true immigration reform take place um the 2018 midterm elections delivered a a divided um government we got a democrat controlled congress and a house rather and a republican controlled senate so it's a divided congress and exit polling It's very interesting because, you know, we've had two years to digest some of that exit polling. And I think it's pretty important to understand that Americans remain committed to immigration enforcement. In spite of all of these, uh, you know, lunatics running around saying we have to abolish ICE and we don't need immigration services and, you know, blah, blah, blah. The the presidential campaign that will be taking place in 2020 is going to have some pretty important challenges when it comes to this immigration issue. First and foremost, build a wall. You know, people like you and I don't have any hesitation about saying we need a wall. We looked at these migrant caravans over the last couple of weeks. We look at all the other illegal immigrants, whether they come in through ports of entry, overstaying visas, you name it. How do you have a sovereign country if you don't have sovereign borders? You don't. One of the things that Congress has to work on and should be talked about in the 2020 election is closing all these asylum loopholes. When I look at the abuse, um, this will really test the resolve of Congress, whether or not they want to safeguard um, our humanitarian policies. Because I don't want to turn away people who are seeking asylum, who definitely need asylum, But we have all this crazy stuff going on now at the border where people are like coached and what to say and what what constitutes a need for asylum. Asylum is for political prisoners and people whose lives are in danger should they be returned to their home country. Not in danger from criminals, not in danger from angry husbands, but in danger from their government. And that's not a case that we're holding people accountable for. We're just saying, hey, I'm seeking asylum. You know, it's dangerous where I came from, and that's uh, that's supposed to be good enough. Well, it's not. And a lot of the um, decisions that will be made in this next two years, and certainly uh, as we look at the 2020 election, will be to look at the uh, Supreme Court. You're going to have all these key immigration cases on DACA, on the border enforcement, and on sanctuary policies, and they're going to be decided finally, you know, at the Supreme Court level. And look, the president can affect positive change. He can do the executive actions. He can do rulemaking that'll keep um, enforcing our laws. But uh, there's a whole lot of people up in Washington, and I know this having uh, faced them down in public settings, um, this radical open borders caucus in Congress that grabs almost all of the attention when we talk about this. Um, new purple district House Democrats that really have the potential to force their leaders to yield to some of this commonplace enforcement. I mean, earlier in this week, we heard Beto O'Rourke walk back his comments about uh, tearing down walls and how there's never a need for a wall. Uh, you know, somebody got a hold of Beto and said, wait, wait, wait a minute. 
Are you saying that uh, there should be no border enforcement whatsoever? That drug uh, dealers should be able to come across freely and that we should have people who are, you know, running uh, smuggling, human smuggling operations. And he had to walk back some of his comments. Now, of course, they're all racing to the left and they're all worried about their uh, their base, which they believe. This is what's so fascinating. The left believes their base is for open borders. The left believes their base thinks that walls are immoral. The same people who have walls all around their houses find walls immoral. And the American public is too savvy right now. We, we're not going to fall for that garbage anymore. Um, we have a lot of reasons um, to make sure that immigration gets reformed and gets reformed soon. Um, there, when I look at the demographics... As, as we're uh, coming up on another election, another presidential election, hard to believe, right? We're less than uh, halfway to the next presidential election. We need to have information. We need to be talking to officials. I need to be um, bringing in experts, which I always do from the Center for Immigration Studies, from uh, the Federation of American Immigration Reform, and of course, uh, if I can get some of our elected representatives to come on the show, I mean, with... Uh, very few willing to appear on the show. Listen, um, I, I don't blame them. I wouldn't want to go on a show where I knew I was going to get my rump handed to me, ha, you know, as often as I was going to get to uh, make my stupid position heard. But uh, I, I'm just, I've had it. I told you the revolution is beginning. There are reasons for us to fight back. There are reasons to consider, um, seriously consider, how willing we are to fight the good fight or whether we're just going to stand by and allow our country to be diminished, whether it's uh, through a, a, a literally dissolving immigration system where people are now accused of bigotry if they think there should be any rules or regulations to who comes into this country. You know, it's, it's often said, and it sounds like an old canard really, but, you know, my ancestors, when they came to this country, how to have sponsors, how to have employment, how to not depend on any kind of government handouts. I mean, they literally were barred from accepting any kinds of payment from the government. And, and that's okay because what it did was it uh, ensured that the people who were coming in and becoming Americans wanted to be Americans, were willing to do just about anything to be Americans. They, they fled countries and situations um, very much like what we see around the world today. The difference was they were being hunted down. So they came or they were being starved to death and they came here and we afforded them every benefit but not at the cost to the taxpayer if you want to make it in america and this was how it was then and it really is how it is today you'll be given an opportunity to make it but you got to play by the rules you know if you want to be a drug dealer then that's against the rules you know if you think prostitution like we saw earlier this week all these busts up in palm beach county um sex trafficking of girls and and women that is mind-boggling when you listen to some of the statistics that we were reporting earlier in the week. You, you want to throw up, you know, women who were captive, um, couldn't leave, didn't have driver's licenses, didn't have any identification, were servicing 1,500 men a year. What kind of, you know, this is America. You know, when people say to me, oh, we shouldn't have walls. No, no, we shouldn't have uh, sex slaves in Palm Beach County. How about that? That's something we shouldn't have. And a wall may very well tamp down the amount of human trafficking that goes on. I believe that.
I, I don't just, you know, speak those words because uh, I, I read them in a talking point. I have been studying this long enough to tell you that walls work. In the areas where we have walls, we have reduced drug trafficking, reduced human su- smuggling, just reduced misery. I mean, some of these towns along the border are now, uh, you know, suffering enormous consequences overcrowded schools hospitals that can't attend to the citizens and and that's just the the very obvious there's also just the the discrepancy between cultures now most cultures catch up and become very americanized um within a generation but i see a different different kind of uh, immigrant coming now especially the ones who don't do it legally um they want to hold on to uh, to their culture even some of the most uh harsh aspects of their culture whether it's sexual or uh you know criminality look i'm not interested in any more gangs or gang members coming to america and if a wall will cut down the amount of people that actually come to this country who have no business being here then i'm all for a wall but we're gonna have to fight for this this isn't gonna come easy too many people on the other side have made you feel small made you feel insignificant made you feel like you were a bigot when you weren't So this year, we fight back. You know, one of the things that uh, kept me up last night, and, you know, it's getting to the point where I feel so compelled to bring information to you, my friends, my listeners, because I feel like we're getting short shrifted everywhere I turn, no matter what network I turn on, even radio you know i don't listen to a whole lot of talk radio but i do check in on certain shows and i have to tell you people are just beating the same drums over and over again um and some of them have absolutely nothing to do with the future of this country as a matter of fact they have nothing to do with our lives uh for most of us we are not going to be affected by any grand jury determinations, uh, you know, and who's a criminal and who's faking and who's telling the truth. It's just, it's sort of entertainment. It's a way of keeping us from really looking at important things, the kinds of things that are dividing this nation, the kinds of things that are making us weak, not just in, in reality, but weaker still in the eyes of the rest of the world. You know, I get sick and tired of listening to people talk about how, well, you know, since uh, Donald Trump became the president, uh, they don't have any respect for us anywhere in the world. You know, that has not been my assessment at all. I look around and I see some of the most incredible um, alliances and a strengthening of certain alliances that didn't happen under all of these supposedly great uh, charismatic presidents that everybody wanted to, uh, you know, give Nobel Prizes to. Um, and in fact, I look at how this president is, you know, meeting with Kim Jong-un again. And can you just for a minute cl- close your eyes and imagine that we were talking about um, Barack Obama, President Obama, meeting with Kim Jong-un and actually talking seriously about how to bring North Korea back into the community of nations. I I mean, is there any doubt in your mind that we would be not just talking about, uh, you know, uh, Nobel Prizes, we'd be talking about making him the emperor of the world. And that, that, to me, is a pretty scary subject, that we would not have a clue 
would we, as to whether or not he could achieve results? At least we've seen President Trump go there and actually have these conversations, and we can have some faith that he is not going to be bullied by anybody. He can't even be bullied by the media here in this country or the Congress. Uh, I think the only person who is successful at bullying him at all uh, might be, well, I can't think of anybody. It's not Nancy Pelosi. It's not Mitch McConnell. It's not uh, It's not anybody in leadership. It certainly um, wasn't Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan just uh, treated him like garbage, but I don't think he was bullied by Paul Ryan. And uh, as you've all noticed, Paul Ryan is nowhere to be seen or heard from. Although Trey Gowdy started to reemerge, like, you know, starting to make public appearances on TV shows. And I'm kind of wondering about that, right? Didn't he say he wanted to leave? He didn't want to have anything to do with the insanity in Washington? So then why is he so eager to get on these uh, cable news shows and give me his opinion? You can't help us anymore. You're working for some big hotshot law firm. So really, like, you're weighing in now? Why don't you stay there and help us fight the good fight? You know, why didn't these Republicans, who all bailed like the cowards they are, why didn't they stay on? 93% of incumbents get reelected, and we lost 55 people to retirement. It's almost like it was part of the coup. So I thought it would be interesting to look at a list, or at least discuss a list of hoax hate crimes uh, pretty much all happening within the Trump era. That's kind of crazy when you think about it, right? You have uh, Jesse or Jesse Smollett accused of staging a racist and an anti-gay attack on himself. And that triggered people to put together lists of just how many incidents there have been of hoax hate crimes. And I'm looking at Peter Hassan and his report on the Daily Caller. And I must admit, it's kind of stunning. It starts off in uh, November of 2016, which is, of course, the month where Donald Trump got elected. And the first one was this anti-Muslim hate crime in Michigan, which turned out to be a hoax. A uh, Muslim woman at the University of Michigan got a whole lot of attention from everybody, the Washington Post and all of the major uh, Alphabet Soup networks, after she claimed that a drunken 20-something man threatened to light her on fire if she didn't take off her hijab. And of course, the university came out, everybody condemned this hateful attack. It turned out to be a hoax. Again, in November of 2016, you had this uh, Taylor Volk. He was an openly bisexual senior at North Park University. And he uh, claimed to be the target of hateful notes right after President Trump was elected in November. He told uh, NBC News, I just want them to stop. But the them that, uh, or actually it was a she, the them turned out to be Taylor, him or herself. I I don't even know which gender the person identified themselves as, but they were openly bisexual, whatever that means. And uh, they they fabricated the whole thing. Then in, uh, also in November in Philadelphia, 
You had the woman, Ashley Boyer, who claimed that she was harassed at a gas station by white Trump-supporting males. Uh, One of them, she said, pulled a gun on her. And then she claimed that the men proceeded to talk about the election and how glad they are they, that they won't have to deal with, uh, and then they use the N-word much longer. So she posted it, it went viral, and then she deleted her post and claimed that the men had been caught and were facing criminal charges. Boo, not true. That was a that was a lie. The local p- police actually debunked her whole story. Then we had in also in November of 2016, an 18-year-old Muslim woman in Louisiana claimed that two white men, one of whom had a Trump hat on, they always seemed to have a Trump hat on, attacked and robbed her, taking her wallet and her hijab while yelling racial slurs. She later admitted to the uh, Lafayette Police Department that she made the whole thing up. I mean, is it, you starting to see a pattern here? Yeah, exactly. Then in 2016, you had the church organist who got arrested uh, about six months later after he was found responsible for spray painting a swastika, a slur, a racial slur, and the words Heil Trump on his own church in November. And you know, when the story first broke, the media went ballistic. They, they, this offensive graffiti at St. David is among numerous incidents that have happened in the wake of Trump's election day win. That's what the Washington Post reported. By the way, it never happened. Well, it happened, but it was the church organist himself who did that. But the media was just so eager, so happy to blame it on Donald Trump. You, you have to wonder what it is about him that makes them so crazy. I, mean, I know he threatens them, but good God, to run with every stupid story that anybody brings up. In December of that year, we had the drunk white men who attacked the Muslim woman Another story that never happened, another 18-year-old Muslim woman, this time in New York, was the subject of breathless headlines after she claimed to have been attacked by a group of Donald Trump supporters on a New York subway while onlookers did nothing. The woman's name was Yasmin Saweed, and she went on to confess that the whole thing was made up. Well, sure, because not a single person witnessed this And when the police went looking, they uh, debunked the whole thing. Then you have in Denton, Texas, in December of 2016, David Williams set his own car on fire and painted N-lovers on his home's gate in an apparent attempt to stage a hate crime. Local police investigated the arson as a hate crime. Williams and his wife, Jenny, collected more than $5,000 from Good Samaritans via a GoFundMe page before the hoax was exposed. You can't make this stuff up. You just can't. Then you had the prankster who tricked 
uh, tricked a liberal journalist into spreading anti-Trump hoax. Uh, the one was, uh, what was it? The All of these Trump hate crime, Trump-inspired hate crimes were spread far and wide by liberals and liberal journalists in particular. And so an online prankster decided to test just how easy it was to fool journalists. So he sent Mike.com writer, um, what was her name, Sarah something, sent her that story in which a Native American claimed to have been harassed by an alleged Trump supporter uh, because she was Mexican. And, and she had no evidence, didn't matter. Uh, Sarah Harvard, that was her name. Sarah Harvard spread that story all over the place. And uh, we have proof because emails showed that it was her. And again, you know, they were just so eager to jump on a story that fit the narrative they were trying to spin. Then we had the student who writes anti-Muslim graffiti on his own door at Beloit College. A Muslim student wrote anti-Muslim graffiti on his own dorm room door. The student was... Uh, reportedly motivated by a desire to seek attention after a Jewish student was targeted with an anti-Semitic note. Well, you can't let the Jew get all the attention. Then in April of 2017, you had uh, all those media outlets who didn't want to know who was behind the string of the bomb threats that were targeting synagogues and uh, Jewish community centers before linking the threats to Trump right away, went to Trump, went to Trump. Ends up a U.S. Israeli man was charged and indicted. A former reporter for The Intercept was also charged with making several copycat bomb threats. I mean, it's so shameless, really. Then you had the hoax at St. Olive in May of 2017. Students at St. Olive College in Minnesota Stage protests, they boycotted their classes after racist notes that were targeting black students were found all around the campus. They got coverage in national media outlets like the Washington Post again, the New York Times, NBC, CBS, CNN, MSLSD. It later came out that, the, uh, that a black student was responsible for the racist notes. The student carried out this hoax in order to draw attention to concerns about the campus climate. That's what the university said. Trust me, that's the excuse we're going to hear over and over again. Well, I just wanted to point out how much racism there really is. And even if this wasn't true, there's racism. Shades of Smollett, right? Then we had the fake hate at the Air Force Academy. The whole Air Force Academy thrown into turmoil in September of 2017 when horrific racist notes were found at the Academy's preparatory school saying, go home and word um, and worse. The superintendent made this uh, impassioned speech that went viral talking about how awful this was. And uh, he said, if you can't treat someone with dignity and respect, then you need to get out. Unfortunately, uh, two months later, authorities determined that one of the students targeted by the notes was also the person responsible for writing them. You had the Kansas State fake hate crime in November of 2017. It must have been the anniversary specials. A student at Kansas State University filed a police report over racist graffiti left on his car. It said, home N-word boy and whites only. 
which the student later admitted he wrote. Another instance of racist graffiti that same month also turned out to be a hoax. A Missouri high school uh, investigated after racial slurs were left on a bathroom mirror in November of 2017, only to find that the student responsible responsible for, for writing all that stuff was not white. You see the pattern, right? Then you had the waitress. Oh, no, then you had that, that waiter who faked the note calling himself a terrorist. Remember that one? The Texas waiter, Khalil Cavill, went viral after posting a Facebook picture of a racist note that he claimed a customer left on the receipt in lieu of a tip. The note described him as a terrorist at the Saltgrass Steakhouse where Cavill worked. And, a, a, you know, they banned these customers for life before an investigation revealed that the waiter had faked the note. I, I, I wrote it. I don't have an explanation, he said. I made a mistake. There's no excuse for what I did. No, there isn't. Then they had the waitress that faked the racist note. A Texas waitress apologized in July of 2018 after blaming local law enforcement for an offensive note targeting Mexicans, which she later had to admit she wrote herself. And you had the New York woman who was charged in September of 2018 after police determined she fabricated a story about somebody yelling racial slurs at her and leaving a racist note on her car turned out to be not true. There were racist notes at Drake University, which were actually the work of one of the students who had been targeted by another student. The fact that the actions of the student who has admitted guilt were propelled by motives other than hate didn't mean that no harm was done. But at least you don't have to worry about it. That's what the university president said. Uh, don't panic. Everything's going to be all right. And uh, don't worry. And then, of course, you know, more recently, we have the Covington catastrophe, where all those national media outlets pounced on that very selectively edited video from the March for Life. Now, that was three strikes against them right away that they were at the March for Life. And it showed that Native American activist Nathan Phillips beating a drum in front of a bunch of uh, high school, Covington Catholic high school boys uh, who were maybe a little boisterous, but certainly did nothing uh, like what they were accused of. Phillips originally told the Washington Post that the students swarmed him while he was preparing to leave the People's March scheduled for the same day. Phillips originally said one student, who was later identified as school junior Nick Sandman, blocked his path from leaving as he tried to do so. But then when we saw the extended video, hmm, not so fast. Phillips approached the high school boys during their cheers, not the other way around. And some people who were with Phillips were directing racially charged language at the students, not the other way around. These young men were beastly, and these old black individuals were their prey. I stood in between them. They needed their pound of flesh, and they were looking to me for the... I mean, this guy made up the most horrific hoax story ever. And now, lawsuits have followed quarter of a billion dollars against the Washington Post. 
Nathan Phillips getting sued, some of the celebrities who wouldn't walk back their condemnation of these poor kids. Sued, sued, and more sued. And then, of course, the anti-Semitic vandalism in New York City in November of 2018, which turned out to be the work of a Democratic activist. The anti-Semitic vandalism was real, but the suspect wasn't the right winger that everybody assumed him to be. The police arrested him based on surveillance footage. He was 26-year-old James Polite, who had interned, black by the way, who had interned for City Hall on anti-hate issues. And of course, anything that happens anywhere will be blamed on Donald Trump and his supporters. I hope the media learns from all this. But somehow I doubt that they will. What's more likely is there'll be more and more of it and they'll fall for it again and again and again and we'll just have to push back.